0: Welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. This week, we're delighted to bring you a special broadcast of She Said, She Said, recorded live at the 2018 Professional Women in Advocacy Conference here in Washington, D.C. The conference brings together women advocates working in all aspects of government relations and public affairs. Everything from political engagement to lobbying, communications, fundraising, law, and even campaigns. The emphasis of the conference is on collaborative learning and personal improvement. Essentially, sharing best practices and building skills that help women leaders in these areas to thrive and grow and ultimately succeed. A big thank you to Leanne Peterson, who is the CEO of the Professional Women in Advocacy, for including She Said, She Said, and me in this year's conference. Here is our conversation with Kay-Ann Shaneman, who is the DC Marketplace Leader for Ketchum Public Relations. You don't have to be a practitioner in the field of public relations or even in advocacy to appreciate the incredible insight and advice that Kay-Ann provides. Not to mention the fact that her personal story is very inspiring.
1: Frustrated by the narrow way in which women's interests and political and civic engagement are often framed, as well as by the lack of women in senior positions in business and politics, Laura created the podcast as a platform to showcase uniquely diverse voices of inspiring women who are making a difference. Today, we welcome her guest, Ann Shademan, the head of the DC office for Ketchum. Please join me in welcoming Laura and Kay-Ann.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are so delighted to be here. This is our very first live, live audience podcast interview of sorts. So thank you to the Professional Women in Advocacy for this great opportunity. And if you've not had a chance to check out the podcast, please do so. I'd love to know what you think. We bring together a very diverse um, group of women from all sectors, both political parties, really interesting thoughts and points of view. We try to strike a good balance between practical advice and inspiration. These are women that inevitably will teach you something as they're talking about what they do in their career journeys, but they're also sharing really practical stuff as well and talking about issues that oftentimes we as women can put in our own path that can get in our way. So I think you'll like it. Check it out. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my friend Kay Ann Shaineman, um, who is an amazing person, uh, amazing champion of women. She is a veteran corporate communications professional. She has more than two decades of experience in Public Policy, Public Affairs, and Consumer Advocacy. She is the Managing Director of Ketchum's uh, Washington, D.C. Marketplace, and basically runs their D.C. office here. And she's also the Director of Public Affairs for Ketchum Public Relations, the firm. She is a wonderful friend, and as I said, a great supporter of women, and I've been trying to get her on the podcast for some time, so this is my lucky day. (laughs) Lucky for me, too. Okay, and welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Really great to have you. So the news cycle, as we all know, operates 24-7. It is unyielding. You've got more sources than you can shake a stick at. It makes public relations particularly challenging you couple that with sensory overload How do you help your clients make sure that their messages are getting through?
1: That's a great question. There are pluses and minuses to the fast-paced news cycle. So I can think back to 15 years ago when I was working on political campaigns and and we had clip books and you knew a certain time at night where the news stopped. And then you received that and you knew that things wouldn't start brewing until a certain time in the morning. Now, as you said, it's 24-7 and you can receive your news in a number of different ways. So for our clients, what we really focus on doing is making sure that we have tight narratives for them what are the messages they want to pull through what are the goals they want to achieve and then identify those spokespeople not just internally but externally as well champions partners advocates but the pluses and minuses come in a number of ways so it's harder to get a message to stick and to pull through and to break through the clutter. So how do you get attention in a news cycle where there at times could be perpetual outrage or constant breaking news? Again, I think many of us can remember a time where breaking news, you stopped and you listened. Now you just know that they came back from commercial break. But also the struggle and the the benefit is if there is something that's not necessarily on message or positive at times it can disappear from the news cycle as quickly as it enters. So we have sometimes for clients, if, you know, if if there is an issue and something that, that came up and we, we make sure that the facts get out there, we make sure that the facts are correct and we correct the record and have a statement, but we're not amplifying anything behind it. And it can be gone within 24 hours and many times for some clients by the end of the, the trading day and so uh, again there presents a number of different challenges but also some benefits yeah
0: we're also operating uh, it's fair to say in a very politically divided environment which makes it challenging when you're taking on an advocacy campaign right. and and you may not necessarily anticipate exactly how it's going how things are going to fall right so so what's your advice for this audience as you mm-hmm. think about operating in this particular environment which is Kind of extraordinary for most of us. We've not seen anything quite like this. Absolutely,
1: I think the most important thing for any communications campaign remains to the goal setting, and what are you trying to achieve, and and detailed goals that become your north star and your guiding light. And a goal is not win an election or um, you know register voters. To do what? to accomplish what? And so having that goal setting where it could be, um, for instance, for an organization or a company, it's not just pass legislation or kill legislation, it might be to protect your ability to operate. So how do you then look at that? What does that look like? What are you scanning? What information are you taking in? What type of legislation could impact you? What kind of regulation? And how are you where you need to be so you're not surprised? And and I think that goal setting and that North Star is so important because and it'll guide you and it'll keep you on track. So for instance, I don't know about you all, but I start the day sometimes with a to-do list and by 11 o'clock it's out the window because so many other things are flying my direction. But I have those three things that I say absolutely need to happen today and then I can flex around it. When you have a goal for an advocacy campaign, and those goals can change, but it allows you to be able to say no, to deflect when you need to, and to stay on message and on target for your end goal. So that's, it's really important to bring cross function alignment within your organization and make sure that you're all working towards the same end goal.
0: Yeah. You know, in most of the campaigns that I've been part of, and mm-hmm. I suspect this is true for the audience as well, you have a number of different components. And sure. so you've got the public relations component, right. and then you're all, all oftentimes partnering with a law firm, with a lobby firm, maybe multiple entities like that right. in terms of executing against that campaign. What is your advice for making those collaborations work most effectively?
1: Sure. And you know, I'm, I'm proud that at Catchem we oftentimes are working with other organizations, but we also have a reputation of being friendly and staying in our lane where we need to. And the approach that we take on there is that not beyond the gold setting, roles and responsibilities and clarification. So we had a client that was in the news every time the president and then candidate Trump said, was talking about a certain policy initiative, a certain piece of reform, and he used this client as the poster child of why this reform is good and to put this client out of business. And so what we did was we had all of the different parties come together and say, okay, if it, we had over a hundred scenarios, if this happens, who's responsible for getting the message out, who's the spokesperson, What are we saying and we were thrilled when it came to the point whenever the president would mention our client within 15 minutes we had from c-suite buy-in the board and everything we're activating on scenario let's say 8a this person go this is what we're saying and again by the end of the news cycle it was done so roles and responsibilities how often do we hear that not just on campaigns but in the workplace like my role is unclear i'm not sure what i should be doing having those very clear lines helps with the alignment yeah um,
0: for many of us who lived through the financial crisis, we saw on the back end of that a lot of entities, uh, many of you may work for some of those entities who were had to immediately pivot and think about brand restoration. Sure. How do you turn things around ultimately after having been through a really bad thing? And lots of industries find themselves in the crosshairs and then have to really work to rebuild their image. Mm -hmm. So Ann, I suspect that you probably have a lot of clients that come to you and say, okay, either this is barreling down the pike and it's about to hit us, or the train just hit us, help us come back from that. What's your best advice for advising clients sort of in both of those scenarios?
1: So the most important thing is that we make sure that everybody is in earnest working towards the same goal and is being transparent and true about reaching that goal. So if we're working for a client and we're in strategy sessions and we're all agreeing that, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to make these personnel changes. We need to bring some sunshine on this issue. We need to put out a statement and everybody agrees. But then if you leave the room and things start to happen that we weren't agreed on, we need to quickly reconvene and recalibrate and then rarely in the instances where we see that you know if something doesn't you know if we're not aligned we then need to part ways but almost every time our clients look to us for that counsel, and they know that tough decisions need to be made and almost always transparency is the secret ingredient to bring you know bringing some sunshine and resetting and that has to come with tough decisions about personnel changes practice changes um it may even be divesting a part of your business but having honest conversations and making tough decisions are how you can move to the next level and having short-term and long-term goals because depending on the crisis it there are things you need to do in the immediate And then there are things you need to do long term. So we've worked with clients where there are security breaches that happen and, and you know, they've been hacked or data has been shared and how do we take them and, and, and show sunshine, this is what happened. Here's the quick response. Here's what we should have done here, you know, or or was there nothing they could have done and putting all the facts and the information out there, decide on that one or two spokespeople and making sure that those open lines of communication are there and people are on message.
0: Yeah. How about the role of purpose? Yes. As it relates to, you know, both weathering a crisis or coming right. out of a crisis on the back end, talk about. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this. Every sure. organization, you know, talks about or spends time strate- with strategic planning on their organizational purpose. Right. Talk about how you guys tackle this notion sure. of helping an organization maybe find or recenter its
1: purpose? Sure. So one of my favorite things is working on purpose with clients. And we have one of our clients that's nominated this evening, Amy Taylor with the Truth Initiative. And they set a goal to, you know, a whole generation, 0% smoking, very aggressive. So defining that purpose and then working backwards to make it happen. We reach audiences where they are. We do things, you know, like that audience is very into social and digital and, and how can, how can we reach them in a language that resonates with them? So we've run campaigns like swipe left to smoking and we show up at the Grammys and we educate and use YouTubers and cut a video, a music video at the Grammys to say why you should stop smoking. Now along the way, there may be times where, you know, advocates or, or, you know, individuals may disagree with the organization and you wouldn't necessarily believe that, but they may question funding streams or or what they may be doing and having that purpose and being true and transparent about it and really being a force for good is when you have the most, resonance and impact so there's no question about what they're trying to achieve that it should be universally accepted and that they're doing it in creative strategic ways through the truth initiative and that should there be any any question or storm to weather or politically motivated um, you know things that are projected onto the organization we can always pivot to you know the one true north which is their mission and their goal that they're achieving yeah
0: so it really helps keep you
1: centered yes
0: so let's pivot and talk a bit about social media, yes. um, such a blessing and such a curse. <laughs> <laughs> um, you I'm sure you have clients that oftentimes will find themselves in the middle of a firestorm that really gets lit up on social media. Yes. So knowing how to both prepare for that and then deal with it as it's happening to you. Right. Talk a little bit about strategies that you see working well. Using, for example, maybe you've got a CEO or a senior executive, something happens, you know, the trolls come after this person,
1: what do you do? Right. So first and foremost, we have always on monitoring and we're tracking it so that we're the ones alerting and then we can hopefully revert back to a playbook or a scenario or how we've decided to handle any of these situations. But most importantly, and the number one, one question is should we respond and how do we respond? And the equation that, that I typically look at is influence. And so if it's the anonymous, troll on the internet just having you know what they consider a good time there's no need you know when there starts to become influence in terms of is it someone from a reputable news organization is it an influencer who could get traction and you need to correct the record that's when you should activate and make sure that your facts are out there and that you're setting the record straight now does that mean that the executive should respond should his team respond should an employee how should that work and again it depends on in a situation, um, oftentimes it should be a spokesperson and they handle it in a tone that makes the most sense, but behind the scenes are individuals clarifying and and setting the record straight. You really have to weigh what's the risk and what's the reward. Mm -hmm and you can't answer every criticism but ones that impact again that goal setting your bottom line your value as an organization your reputation as a leader those need to be addressed and in quickly and in the same um intensity as any of that criticism that was launched yeah so.
0: how about if that tweet or that twitter storm starts because you've had a government official that has tweeted something that could have maybe market moving implications or reputational implications for your senior executive or for your company what 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 then what do you do then
1: so i talked a little bit about that organization we work with that the president called out repeatedly and the strategy that we had for them was always to pivot back to the facts and link to somewhere that we created online that had the facts because it was a misrepresentation of what they do as an organization and as a business so we did have a situation where a government official made a comment again that mischaracterized the business of this organization and we evaluated, should we be more forceful? Should we respond, um, you know, in a tongue in cheek way? And and what we did was, again, we took the temperature down, we responded and we pointed to the facts. And what we saw was that because it was factually incorrect, it eventually died down out of the news cycle. And for that client, actually, in fact, um, at the end of that fiscal year, they had their best year in 10 years financially. And ironically, it was because of the constant attention that was brought to this organization, that it became synonymous the way that if you would say, I'd like a soda or I'd like a Coke, it became synonymous with that industry. And so individuals would look to that organization. So, um, you know, without giving the specifics of of who they were and what they are, depending on how you manage that, the visibility can be translated actually into better value and business results if you are clarifying it and reaching your audience with the right message.
0: So, Folks are in great anticipation of the midterm elections yes. that are coming up in just a few short weeks, and those can have dramatic, a dramatic impact, the outcome obviously can have a dramatic impact on your strategy and can shift it in different ways. So Ann, from your perspective as you're advising mm-hmm. your clients, how do you think about this period once you have an outcome, right. or, or, or really just starting from now, like how should mm-hmm. you be thinking about it? And then once you have the outcome, sort of what does that look like between sure the outcome, and maybe the State
1: of the Union? That's a great question. So what we're doing is looking at the fact that regardless of if it's a blue wave or, or if things hold steady, that the number of incumbents that are stepping down is at an all-time high. So you have new faces that will be coming into Washington regardless. So you should be educating. You should be getting in front of these policymakers and telling them about your organization, your interests, and why they should care. So right now, again, regardless of the outcome, you might have an idea Idea of what some committee chairs might be, you know, depending on the mix, but either way, you're gonna be educating a lot of freshmen and a lot of newcomers. So then how do you differentiate yourself and step out? Because everybody's gonna be doing that once they figure out, oh gosh, nobody knows this person. How do we figure out how to work with them? And so that's where it becomes important to make sure your messaging really focuses on the must-haves and the must-knows about your organization and that you're echoing that by having partnerships and stakeholders and relationships and friends who can amplify what you're saying and doing because what we like to do is create surround sound. So if you're targeting a policymaker, It's one thing for you to go and talk to them about you, your organization and your needs. It's another thing if they're out at an event in their district and they hear from someone who's in their kitchen cabinet or a constituent or somebody about, have you heard about the important work that Organization X is doing? Then if you also reach them in Washington, when they're maybe at a think tank on a panel and somebody talks about your organization, those third party interests who can really echo what you're trying to achieve and carry your message, carry so much more weight. And then those multiple touch points really start to create a buzz. And it's not anything that's groundbreaking. We all do this, but it's it's a way, making sure you're careful about mapping those stakeholders to your issues and then to those policymakers you'd like to influence or deliver your message to that's what makes all the difference because again we all know this everybody's gonna be jockeying to say you know do you have five minutes to talk about issue X great how do you amplify those five minutes and how do you continue to deliver that message in unique ways that get attention that really retain um, with those new members
0: so going back to you know a very divided political environment You know, it can be challenging in an organization. Mm -hmm. You have to leave your politics at home to come into the office, but at the same time, we see increasingly that sort of politics and social issues are creeping into the workplace. Right. How do you, what's your advice to clients in terms of managing that and having thoughtful, good conversations so that your employees feel heard? but you're not taking positions necessarily on political issues that can right. be really divisive inside an organization.
1: Right, I, I think it's really important to make sure that you have senior level functions that are dedicated to diversity, equality and inclusion To in, and then make sure that that group is diverse and representative of the different point of views both within your organization and outside of your organization because that serves as your focus group for what are the push and pulls, what are the levers what are the guardrails and then you can really have frank conversations about if we're bringing our whole self to work Let's also make sure that if your workplace is diverse, that you're also taking into account. And that's not to say that that shouldn't be there, but that how, how does that look across your workplace? And are you truly being um, diverse and inclusion of all points of view? And so I think it's so important and, and it's something that we strive for at Ketchum to make sure we have diversity in leadership, both in gender, race, ethnicity, and then making sure that you're tapping those individuals in a leadership role to help set those guardrails.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's pivot and talk a little bit more personally, Mm -hmm. too. Talk to us about how you got in the public relations business. You've worked your way up and now you're actually running a very big uh, marketplace for Ketchum, but how did you, how did you get there?
1: So interestingly, I started my political and public affairs career in the 2002 midterm election cycle. So I've come full circle here. Um, I worked for the national Republican congressional committee and I was an opposition researcher. So that meant I went to congressional districts where it looked tight and I researched the opposition candidate took all that vast amount of information and was able to package it for 30 second ads working with pollsters and i loved it Um, a side note it was in the course of doing that that i became passionate about advocating for women and gender parity because in the two dozen campaigns that i had traveled and worked on not one of those candidates were women on the republican side there were a handful on the democratic side that i was researching and I had a a little bit of a, a a lot of a conflict internally where the more I got to learn about the two candidates, sometimes it wasn't always by party line where I thought the actual winner should be. But um, so I had a wonderful career um, doing that for a few years and working with the party organization. At a certain point, I, the travel schedule, and I wanted to get into something a little bit less political um, and a little bit more advocacy focused. So that's where I started working with a, a boutique grassroots. Um, public affairs agency and worked on a number of issues everything from tech to transportation and trade associations and really advocating on the state and local level and ballot initiatives and I love that because it wasn't driven by party it was driven by issue and that issue advocacy really um it felt meaningful at the end of the day and and you had a a goal to accomplish and you, you could course correct and it, it, it had the excitement of a campaign and a race, but it didn't just end on election day and then everything went dark. Um, so I, I did that for a few years and then worked in state and local government procurement. Um, one of my proudest accomplishments was when I was working um, in procurement that we passed a law in New York City in the early 2000s to mandate carbon monoxide detectors. And so at the time there was a, a spike and a pattern across the country of deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning, which is colorless and odorless and and, the, and policymakers were grappling with what to do. And so we went into New York City where we knew that there was a bill that had always sat in, in a committee and we advocated and we passed that. And now years later, um the law has evolved so much, but it's become standard practice to have carbon monoxide detectors mandated in dwellings and high population areas to ensure safety and you can even get a refund back and all of that. But it's it's something that every time I'm in New York and I see one, I always think of that and I think fondly. So it was a great learning to go from a campaign to these boutiques, but I wanted then to move to something bigger and global. And I wanted to see, could I do something like this on an international scale? And could I do something in an organization where I could just do the campaigns and know that there's an HR department and a finance department and how do I scale up? And so some of the folks I've been working with referred me to Ketchum. They had been former partners there and, and consultants and had great things to say. and so. I really wanted to work at Ketchum once I learned more about it, but the only a position that was open at the time was as a research director. And I said, "Well, I've done this on campaigns. I'm sure I could I could do that. let me let me go and see what I can do. And it was the best decision I ever made ten years ago, actually, in December, because the work, the clients, the global perspective, the people, the creativity that I work with is unmatched. And so, I joined Ketchum 10 years ago, but I'm what you call a boomerang. So I left around 2013 for about a year. Um, I have a little one at home who's eight, but at that time he was very young and I still had a lot of international travel and I was trying to figure out, is this the right balance working on billable hours and international travel and how do I harmonize all of this? So. I was recruited, um, you know, at a position closer to home, still working with large corporations and entities and that creativity and passion wasn't as fulfilled. So I had to figure out how do I measure this for me? If I'm going to leave my family, you know, during the day and, 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 and work, I have to really be fulfilled. I have to love what I'm doing at the end of the day to take that time away. It's not about does my commute improve or, or, you know, just do I enjoy the people I work with, but is it really meaningful work? And so. I came back to Ketchum in 2014, and since then, it's been a fast, wonderful ride, um, leading global research for North America, um, working on amazing campaigns, and then taking over the public affairs team last year, um, and then the office just this summer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. have a female CEO. We do. Barry Rafferty, Rafferty. who's amazing. You guys would love her. She's really fantastic. And you also have a workforce that is disproportionately female Indeed. as well. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're a proponent of women. Um, You're running this office Mm -hmm. that's that is uh, more than a majority women. What are the kinds of challenges that you see most often that your employee employee base tends to struggle with? Sure.
1: And we're so we're so proud of Barry when she was named CEO. We didn't realize it until it, it was all public that she's the first global PR agency CEO of a top five. PR agency. And that was a huge deal. And I will say it changed. At least I see the women in my office. We're about 70% women in my office and we're over a hundred people here in Washington. So that tells you about how many women are in this office in, from the most junior positions to senior leaders, such as myself. And so what I see, it's not a blanket statement because everybody is different, but what I see often is that, um, men tend to be more assertive about the, the clients they're leading, their point of view, um, you know, how we should approach something and women who oftentimes all have just as good, if not better results at managing clients and budgets and campaigns tend to have qualifiers. Well, this may not be a great idea, but, or maybe we should try something this way. And so, you know, also less likely to raise their hand and say, I want that client. We're gonna go, we're gonna get it and I'm gonna run the heck out of it. Um, you know the perspective is sometimes that if I keep my head down and just work hard and do amazing work it'll get noticed and recognized and that's not to say that it doesn't get noticed and recognized and we have over a hundred people but I can see and I know the people that are working hard day in and day out but it's important to have sponsors and advocates and then how you present yourself and advocate for your point of view is just as important as well. So again, these these are just some nuances and they tend to, to be on the more junior side because you're new to the workforce and, and you're just trying to figure some things out, but some observations. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about the notion of feedback? We talk about yeah.
0: feedback on the podcast a lot. It can be really difficult to hear as a woman, if you're somebody that tends to hold yourself to perhaps a perfectionistic standpoint. And if you've listened to the podcast, we talk about this all the time. Practically every woman who comes on says, yes, I struggle with perfection. It is a common, not everybody does it, but an awful lot of people do. And what perfectionism tends to do for you is make it hard for you to hear feedback. So we know that we have a tendency to do this. So how do you, help your female employees sort of recognizing this, this tends to kind of go with the territory. How do you help them get more comfortable with feedback and how do you empower your senior managers also to be a bit more aware of this as well?
1: Something I always love to do is to ensure, assure my team that trying something out and, and failing is better than just not doing anything at all and just doing it the way because that's the way we've always done it. Failure is an important part of success. And if you only do the things you know you're gonna succeed at and you're only comfortable when you're doing it, you're not growing. You're not stepping out of your comfort zone. So first of all, and that was one of the things I was most surprised by, um, many employees feel like, oh, this is the big opportunity, the spotlight's on me. If I mess it up, that's it, I'm done. And so what I assure them is, I expect you to go out and try new things and the results can be mixed, but I wanna see you step up. I wanna see a point of view and know that I've got your back 110%. (laughs) Consider me your defense lawyer, your cheerleader, your champion, whatever it is. Know that I wanna see you do something that makes you uncomfortable, that stretches you, and it's okay if the results are mixed or even bad. And so I love to just take perfectionism and throw it away because nothing and no one is perfect. And the more they know that and see that, and you can, we can even point to our clients. Oftentimes we do and we see sometimes they are riding high and everything's working well and the stock price is great. And, you know, and then sometimes we have clients that are in a period of transition and their industry has been disrupted and they have to change their workforce and, and, you know, have mergers and acquisitions and divestments and then, and the longer you're in the workforce, you see that that only makes them stronger for some of them and that you have to evolve. And that's an important part of success. How do you lead with clients? So, so given that, and yeah. I
0: think that's absolutely spot on. It's great. But the challenge is how do you condition your clients right. so that you can encourage your workforce to take these risks? And when they fail, your clients don't freak out. How do, right.
1: you, how yes. do you deal with that? Yes. So, one of the great things that we have is a client director community that we're constantly talking about, checking in, and working with our clients, not just on how did this one activation work for you, but overall how's the strategy is that like
0: a committee sort it of a is committee of
1: clients or you're it's, just checking in with them? we have client scorecards so every single client we have regular check-ins and checkpoints to ensure that we how are we doing what's the feedback but then on top of that the client director so in some cases it's me in other cases it's other vice presidents have regular and ongoing conversations about what we want to achieve how we're implementing and part of that conversation is you know we're gonna try something creative. The risk is this, the reward is that. As your counselor, we really think you need to try it. And, And so being fully transparent from the beginning about what could happen, but knowing that it's an important step to help them achieve their goal. And so I would never leave it on that person who's trying something new and wants to, you know, be creative and step out of the box to also have to justify that to the client. And that's where it's important to have, much like advocating with other stakeholders and having those other touch points and echoing what you're trying to do, setting the runway. (laughs) And then, you know, there are all those Harvard business um, review studies that say for every one negative interaction, you need five positives to counteract that. So always making sure, I always keep that in the back of my head to make sure that you're running up the score so you can have those five positive interactions. And then one thing that you're risky and trying out, you don't want to be doing where every day we're coming with, here's another idea we have for you. It could work. It can't. And that's the, the leadership role of making sure the cadence is right. Making sure you're busy, building up that reserve of positivity and, and much like a, a bank account, making sure you're adding those deposits. So when you need to make a withdrawal, you're still okay. It's bearable. And then not making those withdrawals too often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the link between risk-taking and confidence. How do yeah. you, how do you personally keep your confidence high? Yes. You know, is the self-doubt enter in into your, uh, <laughs> to yes. your day? I think this is yes. an obvious question. Yes. Um, <laughs> we all struggle with self-doubt to some degree, but sure. what's, what's your technique for overcoming it? And how do you maintain your confidence?
1: I like to take risks and it energizes me. And then, you know, mm-hmm like anybody, sometimes it pays off big and sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't and you're in that, you know, in that place where you coulda, shoulda, woulda, if you had a time machine, all those things you wish you, know, you could do, what's important to me is to give context and to look at, I have a file that I think I label um, HR. But it's not HR. It's anytime a client or somebody sends a positive note. It's anytime, it's not just about me, it's about the team I lead. Somebody that says, oh, we had a fabulous day, this happened, or you know, I got to know somebody on the other floor and the other team and this and that. And giving that context about the community we're all in together, how this is just one moment in time. Um, It's so important to give context to realize that a bad day, a confidence issue, Um, It's all perspective. It's how you look at it and it doesn't mean it changes immediately, but it helps. (laughs) And reminding yourself of, you know, what we do in PR is we have sizzle reels. And so for clients, we have a sizzle reel of all the amazing placements and issues and things that we want. Make your own sizzle reel and it can even just be in your head (laughs) or it could be something you listen to, you know, a a podcast, you know, a song that just puts you in a good mood and create your own sizzle reel because you know, we all have champions, hopefully, and sponsors, but it doesn't work if you don't believe in yourself and have that confidence. Somebody else can't transfer that to you. That's not by osmosis. So think about, you know, your sizzle reel and what that looks like and how you can draw from it at those times where you need it.
0: Yeah. Having having those, saving those notes and yes. that perspectives for a bad day, you know, when you're really, really down in the dumps, that can be so incredibly helpful. So great. So I want to go into a little bit more personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you. Um, had a very serious bout with colon cancer. You were yes. diagnosed at age 40. Yep. You're now in recovery and you're here with us and you're yes. vibrant and healthy, and we're so happy that yes. you are. Talk to us. Talk to us a little bit about how that experience affected you sure. and changed you as a leader and as yeah. a mom. You've got a young yes. son.
1: Yeah. So last summer in June, I went to a doctor, I wasn't feeling well, I had stomach pains and they said, you know, we'll go home, write down what you're eating, see how you're feeling. Later that evening, it was just, awful, like food poisoning times 10 and worse than when I was in labor with my son. So we went to the emergency room. And was this the first time this, that you had? I'd had milder reactions. And again, it was the same thing. My physician said, you know, journal, do this, walk more, that Cause sort Because you of thing. were 40. Healthy. I was 40, no family history of any cancer, let alone colon cancer, anything like that. Um, So I was admitted to the hospital um, and it was actually the weekend of my son's 8th birthday and I knew you know, by the third or fourth day, this was pretty serious. Interestingly, when I was admitted to the hospital, I had a panel that I was supposed to be moderating that night. And I said to the doctor, I said, do you know what time I'll be out of here because I actually have a commitment this evening. <laughs> and the doctor was like, not anytime soon. We're building a team of specialists. And then I knew, and when my husband came in, I was like, we need to find a sitter for our son. And this is crazy. And so, um, Two weeks later, I left the hospital and on my 40th birthday was given a stage three colon cancer diagnosis. Um, so it was pretty shocking. Um, so the month of July, I had surgery and then got a, found an oncologist, had a chemo treatment plan that was put together and I brought the vigor that I bring to the workplace, the research, the goal setting, all of that to Battling Cancer. The minute I got my diagnosis, I didn't know oncologists, I didn't know where I should be treated, I didn't know any of this, but I did know I had a couple of friends from college who were physicians in the area, a couple of surgeons, I called them, who should I talk to, who should be my my doctor, and the same names kept coming up, and then I interviewed those, and I built the team that I knew worked for me. What I also knew was that for me to be successful at this, I, I didn't want to take a leave of absence six, eight, nine months, and do chemo and, and that I knew I needed to protect some version of my life before my diagnosis. So I talked to Ketchum about, can we figure out a schedule where I can still work through this? And I don't know what this is, but we'll see. And, and maybe I take intermittent leave. I don't know. Is that a thing? Can we do it? And we did it. And I worked throughout my chemo. I started August 2nd, um, 2017. And my last chemo was right after Christmas. And there were weeks where I was in the office four days a week and feeling great. It was every two weeks on a Wednesday. And there were times where I was in maybe once or twice in two weeks. But I, I still, my team was amazing. The office was amazing. Um, at the end of the year, I was blessed that I not only beat cancer, but my team grew single-digit growth. <laughs> and so... That's great. The best part about all of that was I shared my diagnosis on social media and with my communities and with my son's school and with my church and others, and I wasn't sure I was going to do that at first. I didn't know, but I knew I was blazing a trail in how I was going to tackle it, that I was going to still try to work, that I was going to do things. I didn't know what chemo would do, if I would lose my hair or any of that, so I, I felt like I should share this news and then just you know, let people decide how they wanted to handle it. That was the best decision I could have made because the support, you want to talk about a sizzle reel, the support that I received over the year of, you know, from my son's school, a meal train, rides for carpool, all of that, to my workplace who knew the days I would be at chemo and armed me with, you know, a music playlist and and words of inspiration. I would not have gotten through those 12 rounds of chemo if I didn't share this news and if I didn't have the support network of, Professional, family, school, church, and it was amazing. And in many ways, I look back at it, and it was, you know, a very challenging time—the worst time of my life—but also, oddly, the most rewarding. People that I hadn't heard from from years who were rallying around our family, around my son, my husband, um, and and it, it was. It, it's life-changing, obviously. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Um, one of the
0: scariest things I would imagine is not only focusing on your own health, right. which is very scary, but you're the mom of a little boy, and Nicholas was seven at the time, yes. and that can be incredibly terrifying. Right. How, did you, how did you talk to him right. about this?
1: So uh, I still remember because when I was admitted to the hospital, it was the weekend of his birthday. He's a July 3rd baby. And so we had to not just talk to him about this, reschedule a birthday party, tell people why, or some reason about why we were rescheduling and what we were doing. He stayed with my sister who's local and her family. um, And then when I was finally able to come home, you know, he was like, are you okay, what's going on? And we talked about it and we talked about it in grown up language. We talked about cancer. We talked about chemotherapy and what that means, but we did it in a way that allowed him to process it and ask questions. And, and I had to have a chemo port and he, in his way of saying, Oh, that's like iron man, that thing that he has. And (laughs) yes, that's exactly it. And that's going to make me better. And that's going to make me stronger. And so we always had open conversations about it. And I would ask and he knew the routine. He knew every other Wednesday where we were going, what we were doing, that he and his father would be picking up food from school and, and they'd get all the, you know, all the fixins you'd ever want. And it became a, a routine and one that, you know, I, I think brought us closer together as a family and closer to our faith. And I was thrilled he had a great year at school and, and again, brought us even closer to the families there too.
0: Yeah. What about advice for others, you know, yeah. other folks maybe in this audience or folks that they know, advice for them facing a challenging illness?
1: Right. I would say to offer what you can if you're comfortable. The, the best thing was seeing people rally around us and, and, you know, what do we need? And then of course, some of your friends, your type A's come in and they organize this. Here's a meal train, here's what you do, drop this here, do that, do whatever. But the, the, there were some people who were uncomfortable with it and couldn't deal with it. My own family, that it was just very tough for them. They couldn't believe this. How is this happening? You're younger, you've got a child and it was very hard for them. If you're not in a place to be able to offer the support, know that it's okay to hang back too <laughs> because the, the patient and the family is going through um, uh, enough challenging time as well having to comfort very valid feelings make it all the more challenging as well and it's okay to not have to be the one to support someone through this i still remember the kindest one of the kindest things ever was someone who just sent an email and a note that's like i'm so sorry that this is happening and i don't know what to do but please know that i'm thinking about you and i still remember it and that wasn't a meal train and that wasn't Here's a scarf. It wasn't anything like that. It was just like, that was true and raw and honest. And I loved it. And I'll always remember that because I didn't know what to think or do or behave. And so how would I expect somebody else to? So offer the support you can. And if you can't, that's okay too. It's hard. (laughs) Not everybody, we have to find the yin and the yang. And if you've already got a, a lot that you're going through, there's no need to further open that up as well.
0: Yeah, this experience has changed you in many ways, not the least of which has made you an advocate for women to yes. advocate for their health. Yes. And I know you have a new project that you're working on mm-hmm. that you want to share, the Healthy Healthy Women, Healthy, healthy Economy economies. Campaign, yeah. that I you might want to talk a little bit about. And, and yeah. how that's very personal to you because of your experience.
1: Yes, and so Lynn Taylor, who's with EMD-Sorono, is nominated tonight. Um, she's a client of ours, and EMD-Sorono is a client, and they've had this initiative for a few years, Healthy Women healthy economies that um, essentially it looks at the female workforce globally um, and looks at the power if women participated in the workforce at the same rate of men it would add over 28 trillion dollars to the global economy and so i would worked on this campaign with them for a few years it's a great public-private partnership that was born out of APEC and the State Department and other corporate sponsors but When I received my diagnosis and I was thinking about what does my path look like, I kept thinking about this initiative that we are fortunate enough to partner with where Do I take myself out of the workplace or do I find a way to remove some of the barriers and make it work? And so all the more meaningful um, is this program. I'm glad um, that Lynn and EMD Serono are being recognized tonight along with all the nominees. All of the work is spectacular and know that the work and the campaigns and the advocacy that you're doing, it impacts real people's lives like mine. I mean, this is a client of mine that I've worked on, but it's amazing the flashes that come through that your advocacy pays off. It improves lives. It better, um, it creates better communities. And and when you least expect it, it could change how somebody approaches and tackles a very challenging part of their life. And that's that's something that is the case um, with me in this Healthy Women, Healthy Economies program. It was very important that I stayed in the workforce and contributed, and it, I think, helped my outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So
0: we ask each of our guests on the podcast to leave us with a single piece of advice or a life hack, if you will. It can be your mantra. It can be something that you share with other people. It can be maybe the advice that you would have given your younger self. So Ann, what is yours?
1: (laughs) I would say it's okay to say no to things and not to have guilt about it and for me personally that has to do with commitments and overextending myself so I'm somebody that everything goes on a calendar a master calendar not just my work commitments my son's games doctor's appointments my husband's travel all of that and I see from people that I work with, it doesn't matter if you're married or partnered with children that we suffer from the same um, disease of sometimes over committing or not realizing I'm supposed to be two places at once or whatever it is, I would say it's okay to say no, but you're better informed when you keep, however it works for you, whether it's in an Outlook calendar or something, keep a master, look out even 12 months, don't just do that in the new year or whatnot, but, I will tell you, for instance, I know now and I've seen over the years, May is always insane in my household between end of year sports, end of school, travel, client fiscal years, all of that. And I'm able to say when somebody approaches and says, can you do this in May or how about this? I know that I have to say, no, it's already fully booked. I know October is the same way for us as well. Um, And then I have less guilt about it because I know I would only end up letting them down and not bringing the best version of myself and stressing myself out. So it's okay to say no don't be guilty about it but further don't put yourself in that situation where you're unsure map it all out I will tell you I even have the the cat's appointments on there in its own color (laughs) when do we need to take him in for a checkup all of that because if I don't again these things can fall through and it it helps me be able to say no and yes um, and know that I can bring my whole self and enthusiasm to whatever I commit to
0: yeah it's great KN, thank, thank you so very much. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Thank you. You guys, thank you so much for listening. You can learn more about KN on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You can also find our past episodes. We have about 30, 31. In the can currently really diverse mix of women covering all sorts of topics that i think you'll find really interesting and and hopefully some women that you may not know as much about so you can follow us on social media facebook instagram linkedin and twitter and i hope that you'll check it out thank you again for being with us and for letting us experiment here with yeah. this live conversation we really appreciate another round of applause for kate thank you